therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we are to pray. And you are always more ready to give than we are either to desire or deserve. Would you please pour upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things of which our conscience is afraid? And giving us those good things for which we are not worthy to even ask. But we ask through the merits and mediation of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, both now and forever. Amen. We've been running this as... A sort of ad uh, in our social media, on our website, uh, our Twitter, uh, Facebook. And if you're curious about those, you can find those actually at the, the back bottom of your bulletin. But this is, uh, has been kind of an image for us. He leads, we follow. has been kind of a, a motto, a, uh, a, um, a statement as we press forward, reminding one another, reminding ourselves that God is leading us and it is upon us the burden to follow. As we decided that we were going to be meeting here at Harrison, we changed our image just a bit to include the Harrison colors and so some of you have been seeing this. I remember when I was a kid, I I thought I knew what I was going to be when I grew up. I, I thought pretty pretty early on, I, I settled in my mind what I was going to be. I was going to be an architect. You see, I'm not an architect. Um, it was not until high school that, uh, that those aspirations began to change. They began to be adjusted. I remember taking my first couple of drafting courses through a vocational school that was close to my high school, my junior and senior years in high school, and I had every intention of becoming an architect. I thought that was what, uh, not just what I wanted to do, but something I was pretty good at, and it was something that, uh, that I thought perhaps the Lord was opening the way for me. I, uh, as God began to not challenge because he did it very subtly, but as he began to bring to my mind the possibilities of pastoral ministry, I remember my first thought was, well, I could always design churches. You know, I could use architecture as a form of, of ministry. And I did that not um, deceitfully, not, uh, not to try to pull one over on God. I wasn't even trying to negotiate with God, which is something we often try to do in our lives, you know. Uh, you find yourself in a bad spot or you find yourself not sure what's next and you think you know, but Lord, if we can, instead of doing that, maybe do this, how would that work? 
you know, Lord, you're calling me to Africa. Would New England be be an okay option? Maybe it's cold. I'm not gonna like it, but I would like the cold. Does that maybe work, God? So I wasn't doing that. I wasn't negotiating God with God. Instead, God was slowly but surely beginning to change my mind and change my heart toward my future. So I began my drafting program. Uh, I got uh, a year, and it wasn't a full-out drafting program. I was, I was, you know, taking taking a couple of serious drafting courses while I was a high school student. And so I got, um, I got about midway through that first year and while I was loving what I was doing I began to think about what am I going to do really down the road because I don't know that this is what what I want to be when I grow up Um, but midway through my senior year in high school I was still taking that drafting course and uh, and I knew that I was going to go to Bible college, and I suspected I would at least go for one or maybe two years, get some theology. I was starting to fall in love with theology. In fact, during my 11th grade year, there was a teacher, Miss, Mrs. Tedder, or Miss Tedder. She lived just down the road from my parents. She still lives there. She drove this really sweet Firebird. Bob, it was an old white one with a big black bird up on the hood. It was it was amazing. She was uh, she was about this tall and she probably was maybe 80 pounds and she drove this beast of a firebird and I remember she told us that she had never ever gone over 70 miles per hour and I thought you are kidding me lady when she replaced it she replaced it with this burgundy brand new firebird and it was it was a beast as well um but Miss uh, Miss Tedder, she began to uh, to awaken to my mind a love for reading, and it was funny because it began. I won't mention the author, not because he's bad, but just I'd be embarrassed to tell you. I guess uh, I'm not going to mention the author, but she she had us reading this one book, and it was a huge book. It was an epic sized book, I, a large, at least four times larger than any book I'd ever read. And I suddenly just fell in love with literature. And uh, most of you know that I love reading today. But it was during that time that all sorts of things were kind of going on in my life. This new love for literature, this, this uh, uh, passion for, uh, for my youth group. So many of my friends had, had been coming to our youth group, and, and I was kind of a quiet leader of some sorts in that group. Um, I wasn't, I was very shy. I was very quiet and soft-spoken. I would hardly ever speak up. But um, folks began referring to me as kind of a leader. And there were people that started planting thoughts in, in, my, in my mind and in my heart. I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago um, that, that I would go and sit with the, uh, with the elderly uh, folks in the, in the fellowship hall. And I would be drinking coffee while all my friends were in the gym playing basketball. Sometimes I'd go play basketball. I even played on the church's basketball team. I was, I was a little bit, well, I was chubby, and then I slimmed up. But uh, I was pretty chubby, and then I slimmed up. And, uh, but people would mention me, have you ever thought about going into ministry? Oh, no, not me, not me. But uh, some, somehow, in this course of two years, all these different things were going on in my heart and in my mind, and God was 
opening up new possibilities and new new dreams and new new thoughts about what perhaps he could do with my life. And before you know it, I'm graduating high school and I'm convinced I'm not going to be an architect. I'm going to be in ministry, some form of pastoral ministry, probably as a youth director or something like that. But I'm I think I'm going to be a pastor when I grow up. And the rest, as they say, is history. That's how. In my life, as, as a, a kid in high school, I struggled with this. Lord, what is your will? It wasn't a, it wasn't a in one moment, blink of an eye, God, what's your will? I'm not leaving here until I know, and then suddenly I know. Instead, God was shaping me. And he works in a variety of ways in our lives. But when we talk about God leading, this idea of he leads, we follow, we're talking essentially about God's will. And that's kind of a, a buzz term. That's a hot topic in most Christian circles. We wrestle with this idea of what is God's will? What is His will for my life? Typically, we think future. Our minds are directed or, or, or oriented toward the future. God, what is your will? Where is this road leading me? What am I supposed to be when I grow up? What am I supposed to do with this degree? What am I supposed to do next? Lord, what's that next big thing? The neat thing about this uh, this idea of God's will is it does deal with His leading. And when we think of leading, we think about a path or a direction. It's uh, profound that the early church referred to itself as the way, not as Christianity, not as Christendom. Not even as the church, but they referred to themselves as the way. And as you read throughout the book of Acts, you find this self-identity of the early church, these early disciples and apostles of Jesus, as being followers of Jesus. And they are going in the way. They are going where God leads. Perhaps they took this from Jesus referring to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. But this idea of God's will and His leadership and us being the way. It's a popular topic these days. When we are baptized into the church, we're not just professing a claim of our faith. It's not just a public testimony for others. We're being brought into covenant with the way. We're being brought into covenant together as God's people. And covenants remind us of other covenants. The baptismal covenant reminds us of the other covenants that we make in life. Perhaps the most intimate being the marriage covenant. I had the joy of officiating Todd and Rakay's wedding a couple of weekends ago. And it was a joy to lead them in exchanging vows and rings. And as we exchange vows and as we offer that or answer those questions of intent, we refer to in sickness and in health, till death do us part. We, we mention in the good times and the bad times, in, uh, in, in the mountaintops and in the valleys. We mention all those, all those things. And when we think of God's will, typically we're thinking about His will either in a great sense some big plan He has for us, or sometimes we're referring to His will in a bad circumstance. God, where's your hand in all this when tragedy strikes? 
when things are good, we find ourselves in times that we typically take for granted. You know, life's good. It was um, Corey, one of our buddies from the Dublin church, Lindsay, I didn't even catch it. He, I, I think he was giving a testimony or something, and I missed it because I'm half deaf. But um, I'm not really, but I, I, I've probably listened to too much loud music in the car as a, uh, as a, a growing up young man. But um, he, he said, here I am, you know, I complain about this and that, and man, I got this and that and that. And he said, man, I'm living the happy life. And the funny thing is that when we're living the happy life, when things are good, we take life and its blessings and its benefits for granted. We just assume this is life. Good health, no trouble, happy marriage, the kids, you know, no broken bones. They've had their triple bunk beds for weeks now and they haven't broken a bone and I'm taking that for granted. The, the chiropractor said, I'll give it three days. If they don't break bones within three days, you've probably missed the, uh, you've missed the danger zone. We are well past three days, and things are good. But when things are good, we often take things for granted. It was Moses and Joseph, as, as uh, not Joseph, Joshua, who as Israel were, was, was basically on the banks of the Jordan River, and the promised land is out ahead. These men of God stood before all of Israel, and it's, it is mind-blowing the directness with which they addressed the people. They said, when you go into that land... And when you taste that milk and you taste that honey, when you live in these houses that you didn't build, when you benefit from these gardens that you didn't plant, when you enjoy this land that you are inheriting, you are going to grow fat and you are going to grow stale and you are going to grow cold in your faith. Because that's what happens in the good times. We get fat and happy. Some of us too fat and too happy. Not too happy, but too fat. We're living the happy life. God, did you open up this blessing for me? God, did you provide this great place? You know, as, as we've been moving out uh, of, we've been saying out of our comfort, um, we've, uh, kind of a, a refrain that's been a motif for us over and over again has been the idea that God is kind of getting us out of our comfort. And immediately it struck me and it struck David and it struck others that we've been too comfortable here. We had a, a beautiful place, a nice place. It was comfortable. It was nice. But we were comfortable. Perhaps a bit too comfortable. When things are good, when things are good, we often take life for granted. We're up on top. We're enjoying the mountain. Often we start talking about God's will when things are terrible. When bad things happen. Where are you, God? Where's your hand in this? Is your hand in any of this? Are, is, are things out of control? Is life out of control? Did you cause this? Here we find ourselves at the bottom. And things are bad. Life is terrible. You know, life is sometimes disappointing. Bad things do often happen. 
They often happen to good people. They often happen to good people apart from any of their doing. Lord, where are you in this? That's typically when we begin to question God's will. But we see in the life of Jesus, one who lived a perfect life, one who lived a sinless life, one who was the eternal Son of God here in the flesh, God made man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the Gospel says. And we find Him in a garden of Gethsemane and He's crying tears of blood and He is begging the Father, Lord, if there is any way, would you please let this cup pass me? But in the end, He puts Himself under the will of God. But not my will, O Father, but Yours be done. When things are uncertain, that is where we typically find ourselves. Because most of our lives are not always good or always bad. Most of our lives aren't spent on the mountaintop or down in the valley. Most of our lives, we just live on the plain. You know, the flat areas where there's space around us, where there are options, where there are any number of directions we could go. We're just wandering. And it's when life is uncertain. It is in those moments that we typically find ourselves living. We're not on the top, we're not on the bottom, we're kind of somewhere in the middle. Most of our days are spent there. When we're wrestling with God's will, there are two common mistakes that we often make in Christian circles. The first of those mistakes is that we declare that all things are God's will. Tragedy happens, God must have done it. After all, He's in control, right? What happened in Oregon this week, you'll find pastors all over America addressing their congregations right now in these moments this morning saying that God did that, that He planned it. Another mistake that we often make with God's will is we make light of His will. Lord, who was it that was joking with me? It was Mike was joking with me this morning. I'm going to pray that, uh, that the Redskins and the Saints win, right? And I said, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> you know, Lord, help me kick this game-winning field goal. We might chalk it up as, if it's your will, Lord, if it's your will, Lord. Yesterday was a, um, it was, I told Andrew this morning, it was the worst day in football I have ever as a fan experienced, ever. My mind at first was stunned by the early game, and then it was devastated by the mid-late game, 
And then by the time I grew up in Mississippi, guys, so Ole Miss and State, I actually grew up liking both. By the time State loses, I was just numb. It was all over. At that point, Georgia had been just devastated by Alabama. Ole Miss has been humiliated in the swamp by Florida. Good grief, Matt. Back up off me, man. And, and, and honestly, I went, I went uh, into the last few minutes of the Mississippi State game. There was, it was almost the entire fourth quarter was left. They were trailing, but it was, they were still in it. They were in it to win it. And I, I was a nihilist at that point. I said, it's not going to happen. There's no point in even watching. This is going to be a disaster. It can't end well. The day ended quite depressingly. But, you know, we, we often associate God's will with sporting events. And we ought to pray in all things, and we ought to hope in all things, and we ought to, there's, there's absolutely room to pray for God's hand upon athletes. Lord, keep them safe, help us to have good attitudes, those sorts of things. But praying to win the game The quote is, you play to win the game, not you pray to win the game. Right? You want to win the game? Pray for God to give you strength and health and get out there and you play to win the game. Paul here in, in his epistle to the Romans, he begins with a very passionate appeal. It, your, you know, I read here in the New King James, I beseech you therefore, brethren. Here's what he's essentially saying. I am begging you, brothers. I am begging you. Begging you. By God's mercies. Because of what He has done. Because of how good He's been. Because of how faithful He's been. Because of His grace poured into your hearts and upon your lives. I am begging you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. And I like how the, the, uh, the NIV then captures the next phrase. Because the New King James says, which is your reasonable service? Now there is an element of reasonability in what Paul is saying here. But the, the NIV captures it beautifully. It says, it says, which is your true and proper worship? Your worship to God ought to be bringing your Life, your body, as a living sacrifice to God. Laying it upon God's altar and saying, Lord, it is yours. Would you consume it? But he says that he wants us to bring ourselves, to bring quite literally our bodies before him. Because that's the only living, the only life, the only existence we know. The only way we can minister before God or worship God or do His work in the world, the only way we can is not by somehow escaping our bodies as though our bodies are something evil and to be escaped. But the only way we can serve God, the only way we can live before Him is to live the life He's given us, the life that He's given us in our bodies. 
But he says that he wants us to bring ourselves to not be conformed, but to be transformed so that we can know God's will. So that we can prove his will. There are an awful lot of questions with regard to God's will. But Paul captures the idea beautifully for us. The idea of finding God's will for our life is really an issue of the mind. He says, not being conformed to the patterns of this world, but being transformed by your mind being renewed. Now, the mind is an interesting concept. Because when we think mind, we think thought or intellect. We think of brain power. But in Paul's mind, the mind was the control center of the life. In, 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 in a Greek world, the mind was much like the heart was in the Hebrew world. You know, the heart was the center of who you were. It was the core of your being. It was where your emotions were, but it was so much more than that. It was where your thoughts were. It was where your courage came from. It was in your gut that you lived. Paul says that we can be transformed by having our minds renewed, by having the way we approach life. Not just the thoughts we think, but that as well. But the way we think can be transformed. It can be renewed. Paul invites us throughout his epistles to put on the mind of Christ, to think like Jesus thought to have an attitude toward life, an attitude toward the world like Jesus had, to be wired in such a way as to consider others before ourselves, to be wired in such a way where we live in radical love for them. Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, said that in all things, good, bad, terrible, indifferent, uncertain, in all things, we ought to pray continuously and we ought to be thankful in giving thanks. Not giving thanks for, for the bad, but giving thanks to God even in the midst of the bad. I remember just a, a few weeks ago, sitting in the hospital bed, before even getting in the hospital, being in the ER and thinking, what in the world is happening? Now, you ought to know, this is the first time I've ever had an IV popped into my arm with me being awake. They, they probably did it at some point when I had my wisdom teeth cut out, but I was already doped up on something before I knew what was going on. The next thing I know, they were rolling me out. But I'm in the ER, and they're putting the IV in, and they're asking, are you a fan of needles? I said, this is the first time I've ever been here for something like this. And they're like, oh, Really? But I remember thinking, Lord, what in the world is going on? I told Lindsay, I, they're asking me about the last time I've taken antibiotics when I was a kid. And even then, very rarely. I was a, always in incredible health. So was I thanking God for being in the hospital? Absolutely not. I, was, I wasn't arguing with God. I was thinking, Lord, what is happening? But there was so much to give thanks for, even in that hospital bed, because I was getting text messages from folks letting me know they were praying, letting me know, hey, I'm at the house with the kids. Lindsay's on her way to you. She's bringing food. 
exciting. Hey, your kids are on their way up to the hospital. We had folks at the house. We had folks stopping by bringing food. We had folks providing child care so that Lindsay could come and watch a movie with me late one night. I mean, it was incredible. In the midst of that horrible situation, there was so much for which I could give thanks. And Paul says, in the midst of everything, you ought to be praying constantly and you ought to be giving thanks for something. You know, what we know about life When we're dealing with God's will and we're dealing with the uncertain, we're dealing with what's next, we're dealing with God, where are you leading? We want to follow, but where are we going here? What we do know is that we are commanded above and in all things to love. We're called to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, every ounce of our being. We're called to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And we're told that we can't do one of those without the other. We can't really love our neighbor as ourselves unless the love of Jesus has has come on in because that's not a natural human type of love. There's some element of God's love in that love that says, I put you before me. There's something supernatural about that kind of love. There's something that beyond it, it, it exceeds and goes beyond. It surpasses our explanation. To love someone like that. But God also tells us, you can't say you love me and then not love your brother or sister. You can't say you love me and then turn a cold shoulder to someone in need. Shame on you, James says. If you've got the ability to meet someone's need, you know they're desperate and you just tell them, oh, it's going to work out. Be warm and filled and then pass on. Above all things, we are called to love. And that love requires an object. The object of one's love. The beloved. So we're called into community together. We're called into the lives of others. We're called to love. And as we're discerning God's will in our lives, as we're trying to say, Lord, I want to find your lead in my life so that I can follow it. God has given us a series of tools. He's given us what we use to help discover His will. You know, these are tools that I had to use when I was a a kid trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. These were tools that I use even now. These are tools that I use imperfectly And in just a moment, I'll tell you why that's okay. But God has given us these things we use. We know we're called to love. We know that that is the direction in some general sense that God is leading us. But we use these things, the means of grace. Those things that we call Bible reading, Bible study. There's a difference in reading and studying. Worship together, prayer, communion, even doing good for others, acts of mercy and compassion. Those are all means of grace. Those are ways that God has given to us so that His grace can come into our lives in a way that apart from those means, it's not in there. 
God will work in your life in a different way if you're a part of a congregation than if you're not. He'll work in your life in a different way if you'll read His Word and study His Word than if you won't. Even if you say, Lord, I don't understand what I'm reading. Read it anyways. God will work in your life in a different way if you will pray to Him than if you won't. But He's given to us the means of grace because we can't find God's will if we're not interacting with His life. It is impossible. Now, it's, it's hypocritical and it's, it's lazy to sit around stirring constantly, Lord, what's Your will for my life? And I'm not going to pick up my Bible. I'm not going to pray anything beyond that. I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to help anyone in need. I'm not going to spend time in Christian fellowship with someone else. I'm not going to do any of those things that you could probably work in my life through because I'm just so stirred over, Lord, what's your will? Oh, man, what, what am I going to do next? What am I going to be? I think I'm on this path, but I think I might be on the wrong path. Well, do what you know to do. The means of grace, folks. The means of grace. The advice of others is another thing we use. Now here's where things get a little hairy. Because other people have advice just like we have advice. I have opinions, you have opinions. I believe my opinions are right or I wouldn't hold them. If your opinions line up with mine, then of course I, I agree with your opinions. But if I disagree with your opinions, it's because I think my opinion is right, my perspective is right, and yours is wrong. We wouldn't have opinions if we didn't believe them, Right? So when we seek the advice of others, we've got to remember that there's, number one, they could be on the same page with us or they could be on a different page with us. But when we're seeking the advice and counsel of others in trying to figure out God's will, whether it's a decision that's got to be made and I'm not sure which way to go. There's this person that has a big need and I'm not sure if helping that need, well, I'm not sure if I ought to help in this way or that. Sometimes we need to seek the counsel of others but when we seek the counsel of others, we need to seek the counsel, not just of someone who will agree with us and say, yeah, you're doing the right thing. But we need to seek the counsel of others that sometimes might disagree with us, might give us a different perspective on things. I remember as a kid at uh, Riverside, uh, sitting in on, on budget meetings on the board when my parents were serving on the board. Sometimes I'd, I'd be there and I'd be sitting off in the wing and there would always be you know, debates over how the money's going to be spent and that sort of thing. And sometimes they, sometimes they were perfectly fine, nothing carnal about them or anything. But I remember one day um, uh, having a conversation with, uh, I, I think it was with my dad, and he mentioned that you know, there are people that disagree with him on how to spend money in the church and that sort of thing. And he mentioned, that's not a bad thing. We, we sometimes need to be challenged and checked. We need to hear other perspectives. We need someone who will say, whoa, 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 slow things down a bit. You think you know where you're going, or you think, you think you're, you're, you're on the right path, but perhaps, perhaps not now. Perhaps there's another angle at which to look at this. And so we seek the advice of others, and God has placed others in our lives. Again, people who agree and people who disagree with us. Another thing we use, and this is especially so when we're trying to figure out those big things like, you know, being in high school or college and trying to figure out what you're going to do when you grow up, the makeup of ourselves. Who am I? What are my life's experiences? 
What are the things I'm good at? What are the things I'm just terrible at? If I'm terrible at chemistry, I shouldn't go into anything related to chemistry. Right, Matt? I'll blow something up. If, if, I'm, if, if I'm horrible with tools, I probably should not be tinkering around on cars, right? But the makeup of ourselves, those things we love, those things that drive us, our passions, our life experiences, the hurts that we've had, there are some, t- some hurts that God has brought us through that He can use to influence others and to be a source of grace in their lives as well. You heard never let a disaster go to, go to waste. That's not necessarily just a political thing. It, it could be a God thing. Yes, something horrible happened in your life, but I can use that to heal someone else. And then the providence of circumstances. Sometimes we need to take a read of the tea leaves, so to speak. We need to look at, Lord, what are, what are you doing here? What are some of the things that are happening in my life? And I'm not saying that you're causing this. I'm not saying that you're causing that. But I'm saying these. this is the lay of the land. Here are all the options as they're kind of panning out before us. Here's what I know about myself and what we know about ourselves. Here's how we're being advised. We're praying. We're reading. We're being faithful to the body. And we're ministering to others, pouring ourselves out into others. All these things are kind of coming together in a picture as we're trying to determine what next. Lord, where are you leading? I want to follow. But ultimately, ultimately, when the way seems uncertain, we must walk with care and trust, praying ceaselessly. Walking with care and trust, not just rushing off out, but walking intentionally. Lord, I'm trying to follow and I think you're leading me here. You know, there are rarely any easy answers in life. Especially when bad things happen. Especially when bad things happen. Easy answers don't help. Easy answers typically harm. But even when life is uncertain, I've got this incredible opportunity and this incredible opportunity, and I'm gifted for both, and I'm just not sure... It's often then that we need to remember that we are ultimately called to live in love. And we're called to trust God. God is not sitting at the railing of heaven, looking down, waiting for us to fail. God is not sitting, setting up circumstances just to tie you up or... Watch you stumble. God wants you to trust Him. He wants you to love Him. He wants you to risk doing something that you're perhaps still uncertain about out of love and out of trust. We're not called to live with a constant anxiety of getting it wrong. God takes no delight in that. He wants our lives to be guided by 
a passionate love for him and a sacrificial love for others. And he wants our lives to be characterized by trusting him. Not constantly being anxious and worrying over whether or not we're going to mess up. He wants us to live in the full assurance of being a child of the Father. He takes delight in that. You may not have heard this before, but you're going to hear it now. Not everything that happens in your life, not everything that happened to you this week or this year, not everything that has happened in your marriage, not everything that has happened in your employment was done by God. But He can redeem all things. And He could teach you to love in all things. And He asks you to trust Him in all things. And to trust implies that we're also following Him. Let's pray. Father, we ask You to stir our hearts. We ask You to challenge us. We ask You to call us. Lord, we ask You to lead us. We pray that you would help us to follow you. Enable us to go where you lead. Enable us to hear your quiet voice. Give us courage to live life to the fullest. Give us passion to love you and to love our neighbors. Lord, help us to be your people. Help us to live like your people. We pray all this, O Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.